6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Philippians, chapter 4. Well, we are in the final session of our review of the epistle to the Philippians. And as we always want to do when we enter the Word of God, we want to do it with the Holy Spirit. So let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this precious epistle. We pray, Father, that through your Spirit, you would open our hearts and lives to its message for us that we might better understand what it is that you would have of us in the days that remain. As we commit ourselves into your hands, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord, our Savior, our coming King, amen. Well, we are in chapter 4 of this epistle, and uh, in chapter 3, Paul, uh, uh, Paul highlighted the conquest that Christ made for those that trust him, that Christ died to bring us salvation and the righteousness that comes by faith, that our sins were removed and punished. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us, the psalmist tells us. And Hebrews reminds us that I will remember their sins no more, he says. Second thing is he lives that we might enjoy the power of his resurrection. That was another emphasis last time. And finally, the third thing was that he promised to reveal his will to us and his, his rules of conduct. Those were the commitments from the last session that we've just reviewed. So let's jump into chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. What an intimate, warm opening. Now these words here will bridge the great doctrinal statements of the previous chapter with the intensely practical chapter that concludes this epistle. But you, you, you really see in this one verse his intimacy, his warmth. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Stand fast. <clears throat> That's a military term, by the way. Holding the ground that he has conquered. And that this is just a, 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 an opportunity then for each of us to put in your notes, Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18, the armor of God. And uh, Paul there in Ephesians 6 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And he's going to say that twice. He's going to emphasize that here. That's in the imperative mood. That means it's a command. It's not just a suggestion. It's present tense, which means be continually strong. It's not a one-shot thing. It's a continuing thing. It's the passive voice because you receive the action. And uh, uh, it, it, the word power there is the one power that overcomes resistance. It's the same thing as used in Christ's miracles, the, the kratai. And uh, the power of his might. The exos, the, his inherent strength. But we'll move on here. Put on the whole armor of God 
that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Twice he's going to say, put on the whole armor. Not just your favorite pieces, the whole armor of God. The form of the Greek imperative, put on, indicates the believers are responsible for putting on God's full armor. Not yours, God's full armor. And uh, be completely armed. And he's going to emphasize that again in verse uh, 13. And when do you do that? You do that before the battle begins. And we are already on enemy turf. But then here's the real point of this, is verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world. Those are all ranks of angels, incidentally, in the Greek. Against spiritual wickedness in high places. So this is against ranks of angels and demons, whatever you want to call it. Now, it, I think it's useful for us to just to re, get away from the cliches and the words and, the, and, and uh, get a glimpse of the, 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 the world we're against. And I like to go to 2 Kings 6 for this. There's an interesting episode here where the king of Syria was warring against Israel. And he took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God, that's Elisha, man of God sent unto the king of Israel, is in other words, the enemy of Syria, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. Well, the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him of, and saved himself there, not once or twice. In other words, this was a recurring thing. Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing. He called his servants and said to them, Will ye not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? See, he thinks he's got a mole on the staff that's tipping, him, uh, tipping off his enemy. One of the servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet that is in Israel, telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. And I love to allude to this as the first recorded occasion of... Uh, uh, phone tapping, okay? And I'm being facetious, of course. He said, Go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him. And was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host. And they came by night and compassed the city about. In other words, circling the city of Dothan where Elisha was uh, camped. And when the servant of the man of God rose up early, and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city, both with horses and chariots. And a servant said unto him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And I suspect the servant probably thought, This is not a time for a cliche or you know, platitude. I can hear them you know, revving their engines out there. But Elisha prayed, and I, just, I always visualize Elisha sort of uh, almost impatient here. Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. This is one of those simple little glimpses we get of what I'll call the real world. In the, on the, in, the, uh, in the June issue of Scientific American in the year 2005, there was an article having to do with the constants of physics, but in it, it made a very provocative insight because scientists are concerned that some of the constants of physics seem to be not constant, they're changing. And the reason they're so alarmed, their words, not mine, 
if the constants are changing, it implies that our reality is but a shadow of a larger reality. And uh, that really grabbed me because that's exactly what the Bible has been saying all along. This physical world that we think is real is but a digital simulation that we are within a larger reality. And these are one of the places that you get a glimpse of that. That uh, And Elijah was, uh, Elisha was, uh, 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 and, and the Lord opened the servant's eyes too, they were made aware of the fact that they were being protected by powers that are normally invisible. And uh, we also get that same kind of glimpse in Daniel chapter 10. Now I won't go through that here, but I encourage you to go through your notes for that study. Uh, because there again, we have evidence that there is combat going on that we don't see, the results of which impact the, the reality that we do experience. And this, uh, the Second Kings 6 is an example of this. Full of horses and chariots, chariots of fire around Elisha. You know, if you have a word processor, you, when you write something, a memo or an email or something, there's a lot going on that you don't want to be bothered with. It's going, you know, what, what font, is it bold, is it all kinds of information that you don't normally want to deal with. You just accept a standard of some kind until, unless you want to change it. But there are times you want to change something. There's usually a key or some uh, command you can execute which will reveal to you all that stuff going on in different color or whatever. And you begin to realize that there's decisions that the software is making that they don't normally bother you with. But the point is it's, it's a reveal codes key that in, in, in certain forms. Well... That's sort of what we need in life sometimes, is ability to, to, to get a glimpse of what's really going on around us. And that's what the young man had here. So, but uh, let's continue with Paul's discussion of the, uh, the uh, armor of God. He says, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor, there it is again, the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. That's where Paul is saying to stand fast, in other words. Be completely armed. And... Uh, the, uh, to withstand or against the thing. Now, Paul's description of the seven elements of uh, armor of God, most people presume he's using that metaphor because he's chained to a Roman soldier while he's awaiting trial. Actually, these idioms he's using are drawn from the Old Testament by the Holy Spirit, interestingly enough. And you can check that out at your leisure if you like. But anyway, he says, stand therefore, and he starts listing these elements. Having your loins girt about with truth. And that's the first one of the, the things here. And remember Pilate's cynical question, what is truth? Truth is our most precious treasure to be coveted. And uh, truth is the key to success, the key to fulfillment, the key to victory, or achieving any worthwhile goal. Truth is the key to it. And the pursuit of truth is our greatest challenge in any of our endeavors. There's only one certain barrier to getting the truth, and that's the presumption you already have it. But uh, uh, the Roman belt, uh, the, the girt, girt about with truth, well, the Roman belt was about six or eight inches wide, and all the other uh, uh, weapons were in some way attached to it. And I love my wife's definition of truth. She came up with this many years ago, and I've never forgotten it. That's when the word and the deed become one. And the ultimate truth, of course, is the fulfillment of God's promises in the manifestation of the Messiah. And uh, he so declares it in John 14, 6. It was prophesied of Christ that righteousness would be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins, in Isaiah 11, actually. 
But uh, having on the breastplate of righteousness, a lot of people talk about this. What do we mean by the breastplate? What's your most important stewardship? Your heart. Your wife will say it's your family rather than your career. Oh, indeed. But they know there's one, even the, your most important stewardship is the stewardship of your heart. Now, the Roman breastplate was bronze backed with leather. The breastplate secured his vitals. And a piercing of that, and of course, it, it, it covered his heart. And a blow through that would usually be decisive, be final. So that's a very appropriate uh, metaphor here. But he goes on, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You know, it's interesting, shoes or greaves, often brass sometimes, were part of the military armor. The use of them was to defend the feet against the gall traps and other obstructions. But as anybody that's been trained in, in martial arts or even just boxing or wrestling, your, f your, 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 your uh, footwork is foundational, crucial. And, uh, and when you're fighting with swords, <laughs> your first slip is usually your last. Preparation is the prerequisite to success in any endeavor. I, I think it's not just your feature, in preparation. And preparation is crucial. But then he continues, after all, taking the shield of faith. That's the next one. Now, the Roman shield, of course, is about four feet by two and a half feet, semi-curved, so it could, uh, and it could absorb fiery arrows. The integrity of the shield was essential. The time to plug any holes in it was before the battle. Between battles, they would mend it, fix it if there's something wrong. You don't do that during the battle. You need to deal with your shield of faith before the battle begins. Diligence was the, prop, was the key to proper maintenance. Is there, a hold, is there a hole in your shield of faith? Is there some problem that you wrestle with in your, in your uh, uh, concept, theological conceptions? Plug that hole now. Track it down. Nail it down so you know where you stand. But then take the helmet of salvation. That's the next one. That gave you protection for the head. The believer knows, doesn't hope, the believer knows that the ultimate victory is sure. His assurance is a critical blessing. One of the most important aspects of our defense against Satan's most vicious attacks is our firm faith and eternal security, sealed and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. If you have any doubts about that, double back on that, get that nailed down. And the sword of the Spirit, which of course is the Word of God. It's interesting that the Roman machaira was a radical sword. You know, the conventional technology of that day was a long curve a sword, a scimitar, especially from horseback. But the Romans developed a short, the short sword, a 24-inch machaira, sharpened in both edges. And with this revolutionary innovation, they achieved legendary victories. They conquered the world. But there's some things about the machaira you need to know. It required special training and extensive practice. And I suspect that that parallel is also true of our sword of the spirit. Let me ask you a question. What Bible study was given by a, uh, on a dozen different occasions, seven different people on a dozen different occasions in just one book of the Bible? It always produced great fruit and is never given today. What Bible study was give, always had great fruit, a dozen examples of it in the book of Acts, always produced great fruit, and we don't do it today? And the answer is presenting Jesus Christ entirely from the Old Testament. All through the book of Acts, when they led someone to the Lord 
from the scriptures. They were talking about the Old Testament. Now, it's not hard to do. It's a very powerful study. It always produces results. But could you do that? Could you lead a Jewish friend to Jesus Christ using just the Old Testament? It's not hard to do, you have, but you have to have some study and some training and know how to go and where to go. Take some training. And it also takes practice. And I encourage that. I just use that as one example. Christ employed this sword, the sword of the Spirit, three times when he was tempted by the devil. Each time he was tempted by Satan, his response was the Word of God. And ours should be also. Matthew 4 details that. Psalm 119, verse 11, talks about thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. How do you hide God's word in your heart? I believe what that's referring to is scripture memorization. There is a value there. And all things should be done in moderation indeed, but there is a value in memorizing the word of God. And that's one of the reasons that I'm so enamored with the King James Version. People say, what version do you like the best? And I usually tell them, I like the giant print version, but I'm being flippant there. No, I like the King James. I'm glad that I spent my youth memorizing the Scripture from the King James. Why? Because I know it's going to be around 20 years from now. Other versions will come and go because there's always a modern one that's a little better than the last one and whatever. And there's fads and, and style even in that world. And that's all fine and good. They have their advantages. All of them have their problems. The advantage of the King James is the problems are well known and well understood. But there's nothing that has the majesty of the King James. But one reason I enjoy the King James so much is because I like Scripture memory work. And if I, in my teens, had embraced the RSV, which had just come out in those days, I'm glad I didn't because it has certain weaknesses now that I personally wouldn't want to be shackled with. And, uh, and, uh, and, the, and there's the NIV. There's, all, uh, there's always, but you know the King James is going to be around 20 years from now. So if you're going to make an investment to really memorize, I think there's a value in, do, in doing one that, whose majesty has never been uh, equaled. And uh, yes, there's a few words, uh, uh, less than 10, that you have to understand are old English and you have to compensate for that. But that's trivial in, in contrast to the majesty and the power and the conviction it brings. Some of these modern translations have over 3,000 cases where they change the singular to plural to avoid accountability. No, that's the whole idea is accountability. But uh, anyway, God hiding God's word in your heart. God's word will preserve from sin, will mortify and kill those lusts and corruptions which are latent in the flesh. But then that's, we've gone through six of these elements. Let's get to the heavy artillery, the one that many people overlook, verse 17. One of the most important factors in a military engagement is proper ground support, interdiction, flanking fire, direct assaults. And this goes beyond personal armor. This is alluding to the heavy artillery, the action-at-a-distance weapon, namely prayer. And... Uh, so Paul continues, verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Praying always. Praying always. So, as with any supporting fire, coordination is vital. Don't undertake any ministry operation without 
making sure that you have plenty of prayer support, whatever that might be. And you need to be supported in your ministry by prayer warriors. That's a major, major element. It's the unseen element in many ministries, but it's the critical one. It's the one that determines the difference between success and failure. And by the way, in the Greek, the word all occurs in this verse four times, but that's in the Greek. But it should be continual, not sporadic. Like reliable soldiers, we are to be keeping diligent, literally, in all persistence is what it actually says. It should be habitual, public and private, deliberate, and also spontaneous. Supplication, but also intercession. Confession, and also humiliation, praise, and thanksgiving. Praise God. And then Paul continues, I can't leave this without noticing the way he ties it off here. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Paul is praying that he might be more bold. Can you imagine? For which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. That's Paul asking. Boy, he needs boldness. Where do we stand, huh? That I may open my mouth boldly. And this recalls Paul's lengthy discussion of the mystery of the gospel, but we'll leave that go for here. And so, the other aspect we're going to deal with here is getting along with other Christians. John 8 tells us all people are members of God's family, right? No, not at all. The worst kind of lie, self-delusion. The context here is in John 8, they're challenging Christ. They say, we be Abraham's seed, and we were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Never in bondage? This is an example of self-delusion. Of course they were in bondage. They should know. In Egypt, they were in bondage for 400 years. They were in bondage to the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Syrians, the Babylonians. And they were presently in bondage to Rome as they were speaking. That's a form of self-delusion. Now, they, they were accusing him of being, they said, we are not born of fornication. They were accusing Christ as being illegitimate. Well, before the chapter's over, he explained to them about their parentage, and that's one of the great engagements in the Scripture there. He says, ye of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in truth, because there's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. This is, uh, <laughs> I uh, always in, uh, intrigued with the, the uh, direct confrontation, tension that is manifest in the Scripture. Sometimes in our reading of Scripture, we don't pick up on the intensity of that uh, kind of confrontation. But for God's children, by the way, God commands a visible earthly unity in contrast. No, we're not. We're, the, the concept of the brotherhood of man is a fiction from paganism. No, we are of the household of faith, and we are God's children. And among his children, we should have a visible earthly unity. And, and Paul's ultimate example, setting the basis of all of this, was, of course, the kenosis that we studied back in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. But now he's continuing his advice here. He says, I beseech you, Yodius, and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. These two apparently were two women that were at odds with one another, and the disagreement threatened the unity and effect of the church. So Paul uh, makes some reference to that. But then he goes on. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help these women which labored with me in the gospel, and with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. True yoke fellow. 
By the way, that term is in the masculine form. It's probably a reference to Epaphroditus, who's already been described as my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who would now carry the letter from Philippi, uh, to Philippi from Rome. So he'll be the actual messenger carrying it, as will be annotated when we get to the very end. Then he gives another command here. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, Rejoice. So in addition to working together, we also are commanded to rejoice in the Lord. Do you realize that when you do that, you're following uh, uh, his desire? And uh, <laughs> we spend too much of our time nitpicking or with a critical spirit of this or that. No, 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 no. We should spend our time rejoicing in the Lord. And he emphasized that again and again. The, re the word rejoice, by the way, is a variant of the word joy, one of the great Christian virtues. It's a supernatural fruit of the Spirit of God. It's not in the flesh. It's not natural. It's supernatural. And uh, it's in contrast to happiness, which is a virtue of the world, which is entirely external and circumstantial. Your joy is not circumstantial. Your joy isn't external. It's internal. And uh, so uh, joy issues from the very nature of God. We need to understand that. There is there's, is, is holiness in joy. Then he can, let your moderation be known unto all men. And the Lord is at hand. The word moderation. In the ISV, they say forbearing spirit. The NASB says forbearing. Uh, NIV says gentleness. Is, a, is another way to get the flavor of what's being communicated there. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. For the Lord is at hand. Now, there are few doctrines that are more generally misunderstood than true prayer, by the way. That sounds so simple, so common, and yet, does prayer really change things? Does God change his mind as a result of believing prayer? Or does God move us to pray? If he changes his mind, maybe it was his initiative that caused us to pray to make him change his mind. I personally believe prayer is God's way of enlisting us in what he's doing. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Messler, teaching through the book of Philippians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.